from API. This is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. Welcome to Energy Tomorrow Radio. I'm your host, Jane Van Ryan. It's June. Our lawmakers have returned to Washington from the Memorial Day recess, and energy legislation is moving through the House and the Senate. Kevin Book, who's been a frequent guest here on our program, is here with us again today to give us his observations on changes that could occur in U.S. energy policy in coming weeks. And I should note that Kevin is a principal with Clearview Energy Partners, LLC, a new firm in the Washington area. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Jane. Your firm has just issued its outlook for what it calls a long, hot summer for energy policy. And clearly, there is a lot of activity in Washington these days. Let's start by looking at the Waxman-Markey bill, which, according to reports, could be voted on by the full House as early as July. Kevin, this climate bill establishes a cap-and-trade program for greenhouse gas emissions. How do you think this bill might affect energy in the United States? Well, the bill isn't just a cap-and-trade program, Jane. It actually has a lot of other things in it, too, and we'll have to see what's left in it when it's done. Uh, There's, for example, new standards uh, for coal-fired power plants in there. Uh, There's an efficiency standard, a renewable electricity standard. There's what you might call a belt and suspenders and suspenders approach. Uh, They've taken maybe one of the pairs of suspenders off, but there's still extra stuff in that bill that probably will come out. If it were just a cap-and-trade program, though, start with just the basics. You cannot cap-and-trade without, by definition, raising the price of energy. That's the point of the program. They've tried to soften the blow a lot because they're giving away a lot of the the free emissions allowances uh, at the beginning of the program to to try to allow transition. But there's obviously going to be an increase in price. And at $10 a metric ton, if there were no free allowances, you would erode about 38 basis points, 0.38% of disposable income on a national average basis. doesn't sound like much. You know, who can't handle less than half a percent to stop the world from ending? Uh, On the other hand, it actually adds up to quite a lot. On a GDP equivalent basis, it's about 80 basis points, eight-tenths of a percent. And if you look at what eight-tenths of a percent away from GDP over the course of the, the first phase of the program through 2025 could mean, it could mean a loss of a potential $18 trillion. Now, that doesn't mean we were guaranteed to earn those $18 trillion, but it's a lot of money over time. And I think what's important about this bill is that, is that it is, quite frankly, less radical than many of the other proposals that are out there, and yet it still adds up to quite a lot of money. Can you break that down for the impact that it might have on the average American family, on American consumers? The problem with averages is just that, that they're average. The the problem won't be felt at all by the, the top two or even three income quintiles. The problem will be felt very directly by the bottom two income quintiles. And that's because when you get right down to it, every one of these marginal dollars you're taking away adds up quickly. Let's, let's look, for example, at just sort of a, a state that doesn't drive very much, like California. You might see in California where they average about 7,700 miles, uh, vehicle miles traveled per year. It's not, it's not a huge amount of driving, although there's obviously some wide variance. In the urban areas, some of the wealthier, wealthier voters, uh, wealthier consumers who don't drive at all will see effectively a, a 50 or or $100 increase maybe in their cab fares if they took cabs every day. Uh, for an urban income, that won't make a difference. For someone who drives three times the statewide average in Modesto, for example, this could end up adding up to something like four or five hundred dollars just at ten dollars a metric ton. Now, four or five hundred dollars matters a lot on twenty-five thousand dollars or thirty thousand dollars a year. It's a significant chunk of wealth erosion. 
It is indeed. And do you think that this bill, as it's currently drafted, will end up passing through the House and the Senate and be enacted? Jane, I do. I, I think it's, it's a compromise bill already, and the compromise has been drawn along effectively the political geography of the United States resource base. Uh, everybody in different parts of the country has different advantages and different vulnerabilities. And by and large, they've tried to mitigate most of the most most glaring vulnerabilities. Coal-fired power, for example, is, is one of the, the things that was most adversely affected by cap-and-trade for, for climate. And this has been addressed by giving the, the largest amount of allowances to utilities that generate electricity. So, in, in fact, they, they've worked out a compromise that's right on the razor's edge. If they got any stricter, uh, they wouldn't probably be able to, to pay uh, the affected constituencies. And if they got any laxer, uh, in all likelihood, they will have some challenges from the left. They're already starting to have challenges from the left. Uh, and uh, so it, it does look at this point with perhaps addressing ethanol next, uh, which, which is somewhat cut out of the, of, of the mix right now. Uh, if they can find a way to accommodate ethanol and, and the Corn Belt, which is a substantial political constituency, I think the bill has a, a better than 50-50, probably 75% chance of passing. Very quickly, can you explain what the issue is about ethanol in this bill? Well, the issue is one that was actually introduced in the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, which is the idea that you account for ethanol or any fuels emissions on a life cycle basis. On a life cycle basis, you go all the way back to the beginning of the, the value chain, which for, for oil obviously involves the extraction, uh, the upgrading, the transportation, and the refining. For ethanol, it involves the ground clearing, the planting of crops, the use of fertilizer, the, the irrigation, uh, the harvesting, and then, the, of course, the, the transportation and refining. And it is in that ground clearing that ethanol's emissions profile looks worst. Because if you take away trees or ground cover in order to plant crops, if you disturb soil, in so doing, you're actually taking uh, some of the, the carbon that has been stored in the earth and releasing it. And so the, the issue here is that if you count ethanol on a full life cycle basis, the best it can do, according to EPA, was 16% better than gasoline. Uh, unfortunately, the 2007 law requires it to do 20% better than gasoline. So that obviously is a problem for a number of, of legislators from corn state areas that are concerned about what the impact of the Waxman-Markey bill might be on ethanol. Absolutely. And they have a couple solutions, right? You can change the law, which is very difficult to do with environmental law, or you can count differently, which might happen. There's already a 10% sort of safety valve in there now. Or you can give more offsets for agricultural processes that absorb carbon dioxide. I think probably the third approach would be what happens. It doesn't exonerate ethanol on a life cycle accounting basis, but on the, on the same uh, hand, it does actually give uh, the, the agricultural producers a way to monetize some of what they're doing. Let's take a look at a couple of other bills. Now, there are two energy bills that are making their way through the House and Senate, kind of in parallel tracks, if you will. The House Natural Resources Committee has indeed come up with a draft bill that proposes to change regulations governing the leasing of federal lands for energy projects. This bill would raise costs associated with drilling for oil and natural gas and would create a new agency to handle energy and mineral leasing. Kevin, what are your thoughts on this bill? I think, Jane, that this bill is, is problematic in a lot of ways. Uh, let me start with the, the first. Uh, it addresses disproportionately the small oil and gas companies that don't have a lot of cash. If you start to go to who produces in the United States, if you start to talk about what they're producing, you're mostly looking at small companies that are producing natural gas. 
It's at this point in history when we've discovered that we're actually fairly well stocked in natural gas and maybe should be exploiting it more and finding ways to use it differently that we've come up with a way to raise the price of extracting it and hurt in, in a disproportionate way the smallest, most fragile companies. The second thing that is equally problematic is that this bill de facto locks off offshore production in all of the areas that were recently released from a moratorium. Now, there's nothing wrong with explicitly banning something. If Congress decides that it wants to ban something, that's what Congress does. In the past three decades, the ban on the offshore drilling took the form of something called a congressional veto. We blocked the ability of the Interior Department to essentially use the money from leasing offshore waters. This is also a backdoor approach, and it's one that I think is, is possibly a, an unfortunate precedent. It involves essentially a zero environmental emissions standard for drilling in the offshore. The, the problem is that there's no zero way to produce. If you count zero all the way down to the, the tiniest fragment of metal from a drill bit, even though you have a very clean process, you have a standard that can't be met. Finally, th there's a, a biggest issue, uh, probably from a constitutional perspective, which is that states that don't get a share of offshore royalties develop environmental problems. Uh, and I don't mean that too flippantly, but I, I think it's important to point out that Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, and Florida all got something from the 2006 Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act. Alaska did not. Uh, Virginia did not. If the adjacent states don't have a financial incentive, if they don't have a, a way to benefit from production, then it's not in their interest necessarily to support it above and beyond the, the waters that they control. And so if you deplete sort of the, the resource at the rate that we're depleting, natural gas especially in the United States, and you lock off onshore and offshore deposits, uh, and you make it harder to produce the one thing we seem to be uh, relatively awash in, you're painting a, a fairly bleak picture from a price perspective. You're creating a problem for energy security as well, are you not? Well, energy security is, is, a, is a poorly understood problem because we, we actually are part of a global economy. And what we want to do is continue to promote trade. Uh, the, the problem, though, is that if you wanted a security blanket, the best security blanket you're going to have is the energy that's closest to you. So uh, if short of ab absolutely keeping trade flowing, which is, uh, in my view, the best energy security, uh, the next best thing you could do would be to produce what you have at home. And so you're, yes, making that harder. There are also some proposals on the table right now that would, in effect, raise taxes on the energy industry, specifically on oil and natural gas. What do you think about that? Well, the, the proposals that have been offered by the administration purport to raise $31.5 billion over the, the next 10 years, of the congressional budget window. And they're effectively predicated on the notion that there's been too many incentives in play for producing oil and gas. And they're also part of a broader philosophical construct, which is that we don't want money going overseas. We want it here. We don't want jobs going overseas. We want them here. And yet it seems as though the, the first effect of, of several of these policies, one of them would essentially eliminate the small oil and gas companies I just spoke about, eliminate their ability to deduct their intangible drilling costs. In English, the, the stuff they spend that, that is wages and clearing roads, if they can't deduct those IDCs from their production, uh, they have a much smaller reservoir of cash from which they can fund the next well. Uh, so you're actively inhibiting jobs here at home. You're actively inhibiting energy security and dollars here at home. And the higher you tax something, the less you produce. And the federal royalties that we produce from our offshore and onshore oil and gas assets, as well as coal, added up to about $25 billion last year. Now, last year was a high price year, but 
tax too much, you'll produce too little, and too little production means less royalty income for the federal government. So uh, in spite of the, the, I think, the well-conceived intentions of preserving our domestic competitiveness and, and trying to repatriate dollars and, our, and solve our balance of trade, it looks like those tax policies would work against both goals. Kevin, as you know, we're in the middle of the, or at least entering the summer driving season, as it's been known for years. Um, and a lot of people have been paying attention to oil prices and gasoline prices. And uh, uh, gasoline prices have risen in the last several weeks. Can you explain why? Well, they always go up because of two things. The first is increased demand, which has in fact happened. We're driving more right now because we're flying substantially less. In fact, we're spending substantially less on things that travel on trucks and use other forms of, of petroleum distillates, like metal distillates and diesels. Uh, but we are driving more because we have less money, at least a little bit. And that always happens at a time when the second process occurs, which is that we change the grade of gasoline we use in the summer so that we conform to clean air rules on, on a state and federal basis. Now, the fact that it always goes up every year uh, seems to sometimes escape attention. Uh, but the fact that it's going up now at a time when we are, in fact, uh, economically distressed has, has convinced some folks there must be something bad happening here. Uh, I think there's a more important number than the price, and then that absolute number of barrels of product consumed is the one that folks should be watching because there is a, there's a different story here. You can only produce but so much gasoline out of every barrel the way your refinery is configured, and sometimes you're going to have more and sometimes you're going to have less uh, than the, the, the consumer needs. Right now, we, we have a little bit less. We have a lot more of everything else. Uh, we're producing uh, a lot more product of, of other kinds uh, than we need right now. And quite frankly, our demand is, is not that healthy across the board for, for the entire petroleum complex. I think you'll see this stabilize at the end of the driving season. This has been very helpful, Kevin. I think you've given us a terrific overview of what's happening right now in uh, certainly the energy markets and what we might expect coming out of Capitol Hill in coming weeks. Thank you so much for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. That's energytomorrow.org.